Stay Healthy New Jersey podcast listeners, this is your host, Dr. Justin Rabinowitz, and today we are bringing you a very, very special episode, one of my favorites. So, Dr. Nick Molinaro is a sports psychologist here in New Jersey based out of Mendham. Now, that just is the tip of the iceberg. Dr. Nick has extensive experience on the PGA Tour with professional athletes, college athletes and so much more he's been in the field in sports psychology for over 30 years he just published a book and and let me just tell you he's kind of a big deal he would uh, be embarrassed by me saying that but he's a great guy to talk to so knowledgeable and insightful and has so much knowledge to share now if you are a sports parent out there. This episode is for you. Let me tell you, there is so much in this podcast about being a parent to an athlete for all of you that listen, because I know you're trying to do the best by your kids. And also, his book is out, and we talk about that in the podcast as well. That talks about sports parenting and other aspects of sports psychology and performance psychology. So buckle up and stay tuned. This was a great episode that I'm really excited about. This is the Stay Healthy New Jersey podcast, aimed at helping you live an active and healthy life in and around Somerset and Union County, New Jersey. This podcast is brought to you by Strive to Move, located in Warren and Berkeley Heights. Strive to Move helps active adults in New Jersey get back to doing what they love pain-free. Dr. Nick, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So this morning, Hannah and I were talking and she goes, unprompted, she goes, yeah, well, this is going to be about sports and psychology, so you're gonna, so I'm going to love it. So I was excited to bring you in, and I'm genuinely excited. And as we spoke about before, I, I actually already started your book here, um, Beyond the Scoreboard, which we'll talk about. But it's it's an interesting topic, so I'm glad that I'm glad that you would come in and honored that you would be here. Thank you. It's a privilege for me. Thank awesome. You. Um, so I think my first question is going to make you laugh, but here's how I envision it going: You do sports psychology. You have a kid. Let's call him. 13, 14, 15, comes in, you start talking to him, and about 10 minutes in, maybe you realize that the real problem is his parents. Ah. So what happens? Because I just imagine that the parents bring them in, my kid, he needs it, he needs it, he needs it, and you start talking to the kid, and you're like, well, if we don't talk to the parents, I don't know if they're going to, I don't know. How does that work? Very interesting question. Well, before I see any athlete, no matter what age, I evaluate them. So I have a bunch of information before we even begin. Mm -hmm. And so in the first session, I debrief the athlete and the parents about what I think are the skills that the child is excelling in, things that he may he or she may need to work on. Yeah. By the end of the session, we start to have a sense of what pressure is going on. And certainly by the second session, we know whether or not there's more pressure being exerted by the parents. I will have discussions with their parents about that. I have a number of parents that are overbearing at times, helicopter or, you know, kind of bulldozing kids uh, into this. It's rare uh, that kids are coming to see me just requested by their parents. And typically, I'm seeing high-level performers, and kids want to get to the next level. So at least the population I've been blessed with is that I haven't really run into too many parents that are like that. Okay. Well, that's, I mean, that's a positive and different than I was expecting. Yeah. Um, 
how what is the process when you do i know you do screening but take us through what it would look like if i have my son let's say he's 15 he's a golfer he wants to play division one and he comes to you what does that look like well the first thing we do is this assessment that measures where your attention is at the time of your decision making and the test was standardized on olympic athletes and it's used with the navy seals so it's always looking at performance under pressure and we have norms that are for high level golfers as we do for different sports. I work with the Ailes lacrosse team, so we have data on that national team. So I've, uh, I'm able to gather information about high-level performance. Once the test is taken, and I'll be glad to have you take it so you can see what I do, Yeah. then we do a debriefing, which takes about an hour, and we break down 20 mental skills. Most people don't even know that there are 20 mental skills in decision-making. And after we do that, we identify three or four of the ones we need to work on, lay out a plan for the athlete and the parent, and then start our training. If you watch the Masters on a Sunday and you didn't know these guys from anything, by watching, could you tell who was, I don't know what the proper term is, mentally tough? I don't know what the term you would use, but you say, yeah, he's got it, or that guy, no, he's about to blow up. Well, I can tell you a couple times I've watched, uh, without giving you the players' names, because mm -hmm. I see guys on the tour, I could tell that uh, the way that one of the uh, pros walked into the ball, that that ball was going to go right. Now, why would I know that? Well, because I've seen when this individual walks the ball in a certain way, his miss is right. So I could predict that. The thing that is probably the best predictor of high-level performance is grit. Mm -hmm. And I would say Tiger is the grittiest player I've ever seen play. Okay. Uh, and it's interesting. You probably know what grit is generally. but if Explain it to the audience. I know Angela Duckworth book, which yes. I actually haven't read, but I've heard many people talk about it. So tell us what that means. We've heard grit, but how would you yeah. describe it? Well, I would certainly suggest that people look at her TED Talk on grit. It's mm -hmm. a great uh, explanation. Well, grit, she will identify maybe seven or 12 different points. I usually work with three, and the last one I'm going to give you is the most critical, I think. So if we look at passion, so most athletes that you see are pretty passionate about what they're doing. Perseverance, they're very much willing to work hard, particularly high performers. Now, the third quality is a low need for positive reinforcement, okay. which is just the opposite of what most coaches are trying to use to get players to get to the next level. Same thing with parents. There's a lot of positive reinforcement as if that's the only way to train an athlete. Mm -hmm. So we have a low need for positive reinforcement. The reinforcement is actually practice or the reinforcement is actually performance. It's not about winning. So that if an athlete makes an error, they'll grind it out. That's what grit is. Okay. That they're gonna go to the next step no matter what the experience has been, because the positive reinforcement is not as important. When you say, so when you said positive reinforcement, I was thinking that I'm a parent and I would positively reinforce, you're doing a good job. You're not talking about that. You're talking more of the outcome. I'm talking about you're doing a good job as well. Um, so doing a good job doesn't give a lot of information. So if you were gonna coach your son, you'd say, I noticed whatever the sport is that you backpedaled great. You moved to your right very well. Mm -hmm. I saw you having a little difficulty. Tell me what was going on. And in your conversation, it's instructional. 
doing a good job as positive reinforcement, but what are you actually reinforcing? Okay. And the same thing with coaching. The coaches will do this at times, great job. What does that actually mean? If a kid has been conditioned to receive positive reinforcement, it means a lot. It's not instructional. Got it. Okay. So that's a problem. How about the other end where you coaches that are very, I would call negative, but maybe instructive in their negative? Is that, would you say that that is useful? Could be useful? Depends upon what you mean by negative. If it's instructional, things like you didn't do a good job wouldn't be great. But, you know, I noticed that he beat you because you didn't. Now, that might seem negative, but it's also the truth. Right. So we're always after the truth. Yes. And that's the part that I think parents, coaches uh, sometimes misunderstand. It's interesting you say that we recorded a podcast earlier this week with Coach Max Newell, who's the varsity baseball coach at Bridgewater, where I went, and he started coaching around when I was graduating 0304. And he said, I said, what's the difference today? And he said, I think we have to talk to kids differently. You have to be softer with them. You have to – I can't be as almost – what what you're saying would be a positive. He feels that he that's almost been taken away with that's been the biggest change in kids. But it's interesting that you're saying it almost you need a, that in a way, um, but obviously done correctly and done right. Well, we can look at you know studies like with grit or even with a lot of attention towards confidence, which is something I don't think is a really that's a big point for you, right? Talk it's about a that. Very big point. Confidence is not a, an indicator, right? It is not a good predictor of performance. So, if you look at the definition of confidence, there are two basic processes that are used: your belief in your ability to perform, and your feelings in your ability to perform. I'm sure you know that people will believe things that are not true. Yes. People go to war, die, and kill other people based upon what they believe. Right. Irrational. Mm -hmm. Feelings don't tell us the truth. Now, we have a problem then. If the definition isn't 100% accurate, how can we use the process of confidence to predict performance? Yep. That's one point. The other point is that if the basic theory is that high confidence produces high performance, Low confidence produces low performance. How do you get a low performer to perform at a high level? I don't know. Well, the answer is increased confidence. Now, I'm a professional. Don't try this at home alone. I don't ever recommend trying to get a person's confidence up. Right. I can't influence it as much as I know about human behavior. Right. So that's why I always stay away from that. Got it. Okay, so it's hard to change that. It's hard to change the concept that confidence is such a good predictor. Got it. But when you look at, and a lot of times it's cultures, you'll see this uh, in the Asian culture, which is the, the grit kind of quality that comes is mm -hmm. that you continuously persevere. And that failure is a part of learning. You know, it's a part of way of, of discovering. Right. And we can talk a little bit about training as well in terms of failure. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's certainly something that as you're talking more that, you mentioned the missing link, and I truly believe that athletes at this point, we kind of understand we need to lift weights, we need to have coaches, uh, we need to do our training, but the mental side of it still, you know, you're like a, you're, you're kind of an anomaly in the sense of a sports psychologist. Not every team has one. Every Most teams have strength and conditioning coaches. Everyone has a sport coach. Why is it still, we all talk about the mental side of the game, why is it still not? you know, as popular as I think it should be. 
it's not popular in the U.S., uh, but if you look at Europe and if you look at um, Australia, New Zealand, it's very popular. There's a lot of research done over there. Here, psychologists, I think, are seen as, well, you're, there's something mental, although it's more acceptable to see psychologists generally, but people have this basic belief that it's mostly athleticism and coordination. Mm -hmm. When you find all high-level performers, they're seeing individuals like myself. Um, I'm working uh, with Rudy Winkler, who is a uh, was an Olympic hammer thrower in 2016, and I'm working with him now, getting ready for the 2020 uh, trials. Mm -hmm. And he's not worked with a sports psychologist in the manner that I'm doing, which is, you know, analysis, data-driven education. So I think that first of all, there's a, there's not of an appreciation because it's seen like there's something to matter. Yeah, people don't even know what we do. Right. Right. So I think that there's a, a bias because of that. Right. I mean, sports psychology has been around since the late 1800s. Hmm. Hmm. Most people don't know that. Right. Yeah. I read in the book, and I believe it was Celeste, I think her experience, talked about how her son would come off the course and her response, she thought she was being a good parent by saying, don't worry about it, shake it off. And she goes on to say like that this isn't a good approach. Now, a lot of the parents out there that think they're being like the good supportive parent would say just shake it off. Why is that not a good approach? Specifically what Celeste is referring to is that her son had an experience with frustration or anger. And the concern about having some emotion expressed on the course is that that's not the appropriate protocol. And so what she was instructing him to do was to shake it off, not pay attention to it, instead of giving him permission that you have emotions. So what she learned is uh, the information that I told her is that we have 90 seconds to get his frustration anger under control. If we miss that 90 second window, it goes on for three to seven minutes, then you're into your second shot. Right. So what I explained to her is that allow him to have his feelings about it, let him know that he can talk about it you know, after the event is over, but not to negate it. Right. Okay. So to make sure that we understand that it is part of the problem, not don't forget about it. Right. It's part of, we have to accept it and then be able to move past it. That's right. Um, I listened to another one of your podcasts and I'm going to butcher it. And I want you to correct me about negative thoughts. And it was almost, if I remember correctly, it wasn't that you just get rid of them. It was, you compete with them. With That's almost right. A positive thought. Correct. Good student. Tell me, tell yeah, me more about take that. Take over my job. Uh, try. Okay. Try. I, you know um, what I was thinking this morning is once she said that to me, I said, you know what, if I didn't do what I do, I'd probably do what you do or try. I mean, it, it is interesting stuff. So tell me more about that, that mental image. Well, if I said to you, uh, Justin, don't think about pink elephants. Pink elephants. When you tell someone not to do something, you do not not do something you tell someone not to do. Right. So what we do instead is it's sort of like we want the left side of the brain where the thinking is to be in competition with the right side of the brain where imagery is. Mm -hmm. So instead of thinking, we now have images. So what's the image of a successful uh, motion in your performance, yeah. whether it's golf or tennis or whatever it is. And as soon as we switch from the left side to the right side, we can start to neutralize what actually takes place in a brain. Okay. And, and it's almost, is it similar to almost building a muscle to be able to do that? 
Yes, it is. So it does require training. Okay. And and if I came to you and that was something you were working with me on, similar to how I would prescribe someone exercises, right. you would prescribe them exercises in that manner. Correct. Gotcha. We, we work a lot with attentional shifting. Where does your attention need to be at the time yep. of execution? And if you're being distracted. So the testing tells us which people will be distracted, which individuals will be more likely to be anxious, which will be like more likely to be angry, mm-hmm. um, which would be more distracted by things they're thinking versus things that are going on. Yeah. Those are examples of all the skills we're assessing. Is there either separate testing or a different approach in individual sports versus team sports? Excellent. There, so there's a difference between what's called open sports versus closed sports. In open sports, someone's trying to stop you from doing what you want to do. Like football. Like football. Okay. Basketball is a combination of open and closed. So when you're on the court, not the foul line, someone's going to try and stop you. But when you're on the foul line, it's sort of like making a putt. You know, mm-hmm. Nothing else is moving. Yeah. The basket doesn't move. Target doesn't move. Yeah. So, yeah, so, there, so we look at that. And obviously we look at team play. So when I work with teams, we look at coaches. We look at team members. Yeah. And I, it's interesting you talk about open and closed because as a baseball player, you're so much affected by what's happening to you, the pitch and everything like that. Um, and I always, there was always something more pure about swimming or track or golf where it's just you. And what I always think about is, you know, I played division three sports where it's always like, man, I'm doing pretty good here, but the competition kind of may, isn't so good. I don't know how I'd do. Where if you're a golfer and you shoot 62 at this course, whether you're in playing on your junior college or you're playing professionally, yes, things change, but it's still you'd still performed in that way. Swimming, your time is your time. Right. You know. So I asked Hannah one time about, you know, what would the best Division three swimmer, what would her time look like compared to D1? And she's like, it would be very competitive, but it was very cut and dry because it was a time. Right. That was it. And I always thought there was something almost mere, more pure about that. There was less you know, room for kind of error, so to speak. Well, it allows you to use your own potential without anybody inhibiting it. Of yes. course, in open sports, that's part of what the skill is, right? How do you uh, inhibit them from inhibiting you? you yes. Know? So I rem- my, One of my offensive line coach in high school also coached swimming in the winter, and I asked him how he likes swimming. He's like, it's amazing. I said, why? He's like, because it's all about a stopwatch. He's like, I don't have to argue with the parents because I just show them the stopwatch. Whereas in football, it's left up for interpretation. Playing Correct. How much work do you, I would think that what you do, even as much as it is about the players, I mean, if you could impart any of your knowledge into the coaches, I mean, it it would be a life-changing. How much work do you do with coaches? Interestingly enough, I've had some really high-level coaches. I was fortunate uh, to work with other coaches as well. So Petra Mala down at Johns Hopkins and Mm -hmm. um, Jim Rogalski, who's at uh, Michigan. And all of those coaches have had a desire uh, to learn how to coach better, how to interact with their players, um, what they can do to learn about how the players perform. And so they wanted to see the data. They wanted to see the testing I did with them and the testing we've done with their players. And so if you work in that setting, you have a team of, of players, are you going player by player and saying he responds to this, she responds to this, or is it more just as a team? The options are both depending upon what the coaches want. A lot of times uh, I'm an additional psychologist. So there might be someone that they that's on their staff and I come in strategically, do an evaluation, 
explained to them my expertise and being able to assess this have been trained very well in this testing and then give them very specific things to do with a player or you know with the team gotcha cool um talk to me more about the genesis of this book like how did it come about I've, i'm tr- through three chapters of it and it's it's good it's very good it's very dense and it's got i, I actually when i was at my other office it's in a gym the lady that works the front desk her daughter is playing going to play at upenn and I explained to her about the the shake it off thing, and she's like, "Oh, that's me," type thing. So I know go. that there's actionable things right away. Yes. Uh, so talk to me about the genesis of the book. So Celeste's son was um, one of my uh, one of my players. Yep. And after we had finished working together, Celeste asked me if I would um, help her write this book, and she made an excellent point, which is that most parents don't even know what we do. Uh, because they think it's sort of like um, relax, everything will be fine, and breathe, and everything will be fine, and it's so much more different than that. Yeah. And she said that most parents, although they don't, even if they don't know about it or do know about it, it's sometimes prohibitive in terms of finances. Sure. So she approached me with the idea. This was all of her idea. Mm-hmm. And so, as you've read the book, you can see that she's asking me questions. Yeah. But that's how the book began. Okay. Now, um, you mentioned working with the players and working with the teams and working with the parents, but now you've expanded and do some other things as well into corporate type stuff. So how did that come about? So high level performance, uh, you know, whether it's um, business, sport or military has a very specific sequence of processes for high level decision making under pressure. We're not talking about just general decision-making, but decision-making under pressure. You know, there's kind of a prescribed process that, that does, uh, that's essential. And so I was doing a lot of work in sport, and some of the uh, men that I was working with uh, asked me if I would do some work with their corporations because they could see the benefit, and that's how it began. Okay. And so you, you at this point, are going into large corporations. Yes. And- are you involved in the hiring process or in team building? What kind of stuff do you do? Yes, we do talent acquisition, talent development, um, corporate culture mm-hmm. development. Uh, and our engagements are typically about team process and functioning. We don't do a typical team building kind of exercise. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's no real one program. Right. The only thing that's off the shelf is you take the test. Sure. We evaluate uh, the individual, we evaluate the team members, and then we prescribe to them what we think is necessary. So, you know, I have a lot of friends that own small businesses like I do. um, And, you know, similar to all of us, we get into, we go to school to be a professional and then we have other things that we need to do. Is there any advice you would have of things that somebody like me or someone like my friend who might own a gym with seven or eight employees might overlook that they never even thought about? Yes, I mean, the research is very clear about this. A lot of people that are extremely technically oriented and very effective at what they're doing don't know how to manage. And so management is a very different process than, you know, being technically strong. You see this in golf all the time where one of the best golf instructors now becomes the head pro or becomes the director of golf. Yes. uh, And they haven't had management skills and they fail at it. I can can tell you this in, in the safety world, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in, um, in certain corporations, 
or even in professional services, so doctors, lawyers. Yes. They will rise up to be, you know, the managing partner. They haven't had any experience in doing that, how to lead people. Right. So we come in, we make the assessment, we tell them this is what we think we need to do. Mm-hmm. You know, again, very strategic process of equipping them with skills. Mm-hmm. We evaluate uh, their staff or their team and show them where the strengths and areas that they have to work on. What's something that you've been in clinical practice over 40 years now? Yeah, about 40 years. And yeah. doing sports psychology over 30. Yes. What's one thing if you think back that you've changed your thought process on that you used to think that you don't think anymore? I used to believe confidence was a really important. Well, how did that, what's the genesis? Because again, that still seems like something I've said it. We got to be more confident. So what was the genesis of that change? Studies. Uh, so after I had uh, completed my doctorate and how I got into sports psychology, I'd be glad to explain that to sure. you. When I was doing my training, I started looking at the studies on self-efficacy. Uh-huh. And although I had studied it as an undergraduate, I didn't really understand what it meant. Yep. And when I found out what efficacy was, and it was a much better explanation of what influences performance, uh, and can give you a good example of that if you'd like. Sure. So if you were to take um, a medication for a headache, you could take it on a Sunday morning or a Tuesday afternoon. You could take it during a holiday. You could take it when you're on vacation. Mm -hmm. Because the efficacy of the medication is the same. Yes. Otherwise, the FDA wouldn't approve it. So it's something that is efficacious is that it's going to do the same thing repeatedly. Yes. Self-efficacy is the same thing. So what I try to get athletes to look at are the skill sets that are the truth, not what they believe, not what they feel. Here's a classic example. There was a high jumper. <clears throat> she was in her senior year. She had jumped 5-2 all her senior year, jumped 5-4 in her junior year. Mm-hmm. Came to see me one day before the counties, and she was concerned. Her coach told her she should talk to someone about her confidences. We're not doing that. <laughs> Wrong guy to talk about confidence. Wrong guy to talk about <laughs> confidence about. So instead, she, she got the message pretty quickly, and she brought her video. And so she told me, we witnessed this, that when she was going over the bar, she would pick her head up, and her butt would drop, and the bar would go down. Mm-hmm. I said, can you keep your head flat? Mm-hmm. She said, yes. And if you keep your head flat, will you get over the bar? Absolutely. Keep your head flat. So for the next rest of the hour, you know, I did some imagery with her. Next day, she jumps five six. Mm-hmm. So this is about efficacy. It's the truth. Can you do this? Can you keep your head flat? It's not about what you feel or believe. It's the truth. The glass is neither half full or half empty. It's four ounces in an eight ounce glass, eight right. ounces in a sixteen ounce. Right. We don't look at the truth frequently. We look at perceptions. Sure. Frequently the athletes, the parents, or the coaches. Yes, yes. All we're dealing with is the truth here. Yes. And that's what efficacy is about. It's funny. In our meeting today, I was talking about how uh, a lot of times we ask our spouse for advice. It might be something about work. And what I said was they're a terrible person to ask because their opinion is what you told them it was. They have no idea. Right. It's it's like a third person. So they're going to give you advice based on your perception of what was happening there. And it's kind of the same thing, right? It's very similar. Yeah. Very similar. It isn't the truth. It's a perception of the truth. It is a perception of truth. Yeah. Um, What 
one of the things that's in in our performance world from a sports performance world is have you heard of anything about hrv heart rate variability measures recovery how recovered an athlete is now there as the technology gets better something they, they talk about you could put a, a monitor on and in the morning they can see how ready you are to perform that day which is great because then you can avoid overtraining and all that type of stuff the problem as i see it is that if an athlete is aware of this on a competition day i mean it's going to be a problem because if, if you have a game this sunday and you're in the nfl and you're not recovered like you still got to go how much of like I would think something like that and you almost have to be careful of how much data you know. Does even in your world, is that a problem? If someone almost knows too much, it could psych them out? Great question, Justin. So um we have to get some information that um to see what the genesis is about how they're gonna to respond to that, right? So diagnostically. So a study was done at NYU that went on for fifty years and they measured nine variables, uh, temperamental qualities at birth, uh, at four weeks after birth, and measured these qualities over the next 50 years. Around the age of 11 months, we could tell which kids are going to be anxious. There's a predisposition. We talk a little bit about it in temperament and development in, mm -hmm. the, in the book. So if a child has a low threshold to stimulation and a high intensity of reaction, and the time it takes to get from reacting to the time it takes to recovery, psychologically, you'd want to know that. Mm -hmm. So with some individuals, we wouldn't want them to know certain information unless they were able to master that condition. So there are some predisposing factors. So in our analysis, we look both for state factors that influence you, like the day of the game, and trait, those things that are much more resistant to change. Anxiety is one of those. So you can have trade anxiety or state anxiety. There's six different forms, and that's what we try to figure out. So parents don't know that when I'm speaking with their child, that what I'm trying to assess here, if there is anxiety, which of the six different things are actually affecting them? And that's how we would get parents to understand how to respond to them, and the same thing with coaches. I'm not sure if it's ever actually happened to you, but in theory, if you had an athlete come to you, let's say they were in high school and they were a multi-sport athlete based on, and they were based, let's say, Dr. Nick, which sport should I play in college? Would you be able to look at their traits and say, you know, you would be better off being playing baseball based on your traits, or you'd be better off no, in football? Could you tell that or meant, I mean, at least from a not tell, but would you be able to show them which they would be better off in? Yes, I'm in a position like this um, on occasions. Uh, an individual who's a very high-level um, athlete wanted to play baseball. Uh, the university accepted him for another sport. Mm -hmm. I won't give the specifics. Sure. He's a pretty well-known athlete. Mm -hmm. So he went to the university and did very, very well at the other sport. That's not really where he wanted to be. He was able to postpone his gratification. And once he finished uh, college, he wanted to play golf. Hmm. And he's as close to a professional golfer as you would expect. So when we were going through this, I explained to him, this is not the time to do this. But my guess is that you'd be really good at golf as well. Is that right? Yes. Interesting. And what was it about his profile that that led you there? His ability to um, be patient, to formulate, to follow directions and be extremely disciplined. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at... Uh, open sports where it's a much more reactive process, right? So, for example, linebackers are trained that if the backfield goes left, 
you might be going right or you might be going left, but you have to be able to look that over. Yes. Golfers are not trained that way. Right. But because he was able to do that, but also be patient, I predicted that if he was in a situation that he had to be able to move his attention away from a distraction, he'd bring himself back pretty quickly. Okay. So the, the scores and the test helped me understand that. I ask almost every person that walks in here with some connection to sports their opinion on single versus multi-sport athletes. And we always have different opinions. Um, Hannah and I always talk about it. You know, she was a swimmer and swam at a high level, but that's all she did. And she said to me, because we had a coach in that said, yeah, I love multi-sport athletes. She said to me after, she's like, honestly, if I didn't swim 11 months of the year, I would not have gotten to the level I could have. Um, from From your perspective, where do you see that? What's your opinion? I like the multi-sport approach because I like cross-training, first of all. Mm-hmm. And I like the discipline of being able to make the adjustment from one to another. So that if you're playing soccer in the fall, and if you're running in the winter indoor track, and if you're playing golf, those disciplines require something very different. So in running, it's you know the maintaining of the rhythm. In soccer, it's, as you know, short bursts and coming back. And in golf, it's the ability, it's not just about patience, but to be extremely disciplined. I think that kind of holistic training is really important. Mm-hmm. I'm not against, you know, single sports. I'm concerned about the frequency of training. Right, right. And even with my golfers, I mean, I see other athletes besides golfers. Yeah. I've just known mostly from my work with golfers. Right. But I don't like, you know, just getting to the range and practicing for hours hitting balls. Yeah, I mean, I my mm. own experience, I grew up playing soccer, all sports. And then um, when I was, like, in middle school, I quit soccer. And so that year I played baseball all year. And I remember, like, Sometime in the fall, I was like, oh, my God, this is terrible. Like, my mentally, I was like, I need something else. I got to get away. Um, luckily, I, I picked up football and other sports and basketball. But um, I don't know how some kids do it because it was, I mean, that seems to be just mentally like you just lose interest after a while. I see a lot of burnout. Uh, and even with some of the golfers that I see that are playing, you know, almost 12 months a year. Yes. Uh, and there's a lot of pressure to be performing at a higher level because the expectations are, you're doing this all year long. You better yeah. be better by the time spring comes yeah. around. I remember um, <clears throat> I used to work in a practice in Westfield, and, and one of the dads, he was like on the booster club at the high school. And he, I remember he always said to me, he said, none of us think our kid is going to be the one to get burned out. Like we all, our kid loves it. They're in middle school and high school. They get to college. And he's like, his son, I think, played football at Georgetown and ended up quitting. Um, but he's like, we never think our kid's going to be the one. And it's just like, you know, and I, even me, like I loved it so much. And then by the end of my, like, I, I have trouble watching baseball at this point. Like I'm bored by it because yeah. I played it for so long and it kind of stinks. But, um, I have friends that play football in college and they've had similar experience. They like, they're, I don't hate it. It's just, you know, I'm done with that now. And so yeah. it's interesting. It's interesting to see. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, you'll see in the book and it's, uh, it's not my research, but the research has been saying this for years. 70% of kids that at the age of 13 quit playing that sport the rest of their life. Mm-hmm. And when you ask them, there's several factors. Most of the answers are around it's not fun anymore. Mm-hmm. Sometimes kids are feeling guilt a lot of times because they feel that their mothers have the burden of driving them around. Dad likes to live vicariously through them, but they also know it's a time commitment uh, cost or whatever it is. So some kids will do that. It's unfortunate that in our country, 
at the age of 13 or 14, you then make the decision if you're an athlete. Mm -hmm. Because if you're playing sport in junior high, either you're gonna be on the varsity, junior varsity or freshman team, or you're not. Kids know this, expect it, and they give the sport up. So sometimes it's about the competition, sometimes it's not enjoyable. There are a number of factors, but it's a huge number of kids not playing sports again. Speaking of competition, you know, I hear from some uh, parents, and they're like, my kid gave up whatever at 12, 13. He liked it, but he didn't really like competing. Do you think that if that is that it's something that's they need to be able to do in some capacity, or like just kind of giving it up? You know, you know, in life, like things aren't always easy, and just to like run away from competition is that a good? Is that a bad thing to do? People frequently call this quitting. Uh, I have a very different opinion about what people might describe as quitting and what does this mean for the rest of your life? Nothing. That would be my opinion. That um, a child at the age of 13 or 14 who decides that they're not gonna do it any longer doesn't mean that they're a quitter. Mm -hmm. So I have concerns about any kind of generalizations about things along those lines. Mm -hmm. Now competition for me is never about winning. So I have a, a Tao, T-A-O, Eastern philosophy, and it's always about execution and excellence. It's never about winning. Winning is a result of execution and discipline. So it's never about the whole winning thing. So competition is about high-level performance. And I'm sure you know that the higher-level performers that you're competing with raise up your level. There's an interesting question, see if you have an idea about this. What do you think is the percentage that high-performing athletes are at their highest level of performance. What percent of the time? I would say the minority of the time. I mean, like that flow state, almost never, right? 10 to 15 percent. So what's always amazing when you look at Olympic athletes, for those two weeks and leading up to that, they've been at a high-level performance, which is unheard of in all other sports. So if you take professional teams, I mean, you'll still see that some performers are there, but they're not at the 10, 15 percentile every game, every time they go out there. Yes. I'm not sure that youth understand that. I'm not sure that coaches understand that. And that's what I think is a problem in pushing kids to perform at a higher level. Clearly, we want that to take place. And there's very effective ways to do that. I mean, mm -hmm. it's all research that we do. Interesting. More of a, uh, speaking of burnout and, and things of that nature, on a personal level, you know, you've been in clinical practice 40 years. And you, st as talking to you, you can see you're just as passionate, probably more. And you have been. And it's it's awesome to see um, what it, what's the secret. Like, what? What keeps you so engaged? It seems like it's more engaged now than ever. Uh, doing what I love to do. And so a lot of my work is around educating and uh, trying to help people get to high-level performance. And that's based upon my own experiences uh, as a youth and growing up and recognizing that at one point I didn't think I was going to be a high-level performer in any area. And I finally learned how to do that. And I want to be able to impart that because I think that there are systems uh, that people can use to do that. Mm -hmm. And it's very, very rewarding. Performance, you know, particularly. I have a clinical practice, as we've spoken about. That performance is not measured the same way that I look at in terms of performance in sport and in business. Right, right. Um, you, let's talk a little bit about 
I've been on your website. You've been on the Golf Channel. You've done a lot of really, really cool things. You just came out with the book Beyond the Scoreboard. Um, tell us about what you're what you're doing. What's the latest and greatest with Dr. Nick? Well, I'd say that the most recent edition, which will be announced shortly, mm-hmm. uh, that I'm now going to be working with the Texas Junior Golf Tour. Cool. And it's a very impressive tour. I have several of my own players that have been on it, been asked to speak at their championship dinner. Jordan Spieth and other well-known golfers played on this tour when they were uh, juniors in mm-hmm. high school. So I've been offered this opportunity, really looking forward to doing that. That's great. I've been able to do some work with uh, Cal Poly, and it was on their cross-country runners with uh, Fitbit technology and mental skills. Mm-hmm. And we're looking into some other opportunities around here to do similar kinds of work uh, with colleges and uh, high-performing athletic uh, uh, entities. Okay, very cool. Um, if someone wants to learn more about what you do, where could they find you? I'm on the web at drnickmolinaro.com or championsmindusa.com. Mm-hmm. Okay, and you are your Instagram. You post on Instagram a decent amount and yeah. Twitter. Dr. Nick four three two eight. We'll, we'll confirm that and put it in the notes. And make Instagram. sure. Instagram. Uh huh. And Twitter as well. Uh, I, Something like that. Yeah, Dr. Yeah. Nick Golf. I think it okay. is. Okay. Very cool. Um, any other TV uh, appearances coming up? The last one I did was Fox Five Saw Sports that. when I was when the book first came out. Yes. What's happened in the past is that I've been called on occasions to make comments. Last year in the NCAA Final Four, mm-hmm. there was a double dribble. So I was called in about my opinions about what was going on with uh, the refs. Gotcha. So occasionally I will get called at the last minute to make a comment mm-hmm. on their Series X on PGA Tour or NBA Tour, gotcha. NBA Radio. What's the, is there one accomplishment in your career so far that you're the most proud of? Helping athletes get to their highest level, uh, you know, there has been a number of individuals who I would think if you looked at them when they were at a stage in their life, their performance would not have been so high, but to see them. One young man was a, a 19 handicap when he's in high school. Uh, he now is a plus five and is competing at a professional level. Is that right? Without giving his name. Sure. Uh, I did not work with him in high school or work with him during college. But he's now uh, has tour status on a tour. That's amazing. It is amazing. Very cool. And yeah, and there is something to be said about um, the thing about sports is you can keep score. So you can keep a metric on how far he has come. And I was like, yeah, I feel great. It's like, no, no, no. He's improved by X amount of shots with the help of you. And obviously, I'm sure other work as well. So that's really cool. Well, the metrics is an important part. So actually, when I see any athlete, we do pre-test and Mm post-test so that after a period of training to see whether or not skills have changed. Very, very fascinating results. How long would you expect? I'm sure this is a terrible question, but I'm going to ask anyway because people ask us. How long do you expect some sort of result? Like how quickly or how long does it take? Well, in the example of the high jumper, it was one hour just because we focused on one very specific aspect of performance and depending upon the individual it could be relatively short and sometimes it's not we look at what's called psychological energy the assessment tells us that and if there are intervening factors that are reducing psychological energy we have to bring the individual to a point where that resource is available for them to go to the next level 
So it really depends. But I would tell uh, anyone about changing patterns of behavior. It takes between three days and 21 days to change a pattern of behavior. Is that, uh, that seems relatively quickly. Um, yeah. It depends upon the sophistication of what the issue is yeah. and of the individual. Right. Now, uh, the research is pretty complicated, but we can have changes like we did with this one girl. Mm-hmm. Very quickly. Cool. Um, anything else that you want the audience to know or anything call to action that you want someone out there to take who might be listening? Be open-minded, uh, be very flexible, and be patient. The process that we use at the highest level, I can explain this part. It might be interesting for your audience to hear. Yeah. The system that I use, because you've asked me kind of like what to expect, at the very first level, we're doing what I call mind mechanics. And it could be four to six months, and the mechanics are really starting to change. The next period of time, which could be six months to a year, we reduce the impact of stress that it has on the individual and performance in the sport and in their life. When I finally get to the deepest stage of performance, which takes some athletes at a very high level, three years to get to, and I would talk then about um, what I would describe as spirituality. Mm-hmm. And there are a number of factors that influence this, uh, whether it's religious spirituality or other forms of that, to help a person get to the highest level by knowing themselves and utilizing those resources hmm. in what I would describe as optimal potential performance. I think that is a great place to end. Dr. Nick, I appreciate you coming on. This is amazing. Um, and everything I expected and more. So thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yep. Thank you for tuning in to the Stay Healthy New Jersey podcast brought to you by Strive to Move. If your pain or injury is preventing you from living the healthy and active lifestyle you love and deserve and want to get back to doing what you love pain-free, we offer both a free ebook and free over-the-phone consultation to help you figure out the root cause of your pain and the best next steps to help resolve it. Find our ebooks online at strivetomove.com slash ourservices. There you'll find an ebook for topics on such things as back pain, knee pain, sports injuries, and CrossFit injuries. These ebooks will provide you with free expert advice, tips, and exercises to help solve your pain from the comfort of your own home. Just visit strivetomove.com slash our services to download your ebook and have it delivered directly to your inbox. We also offer free, no obligation phone consults with a doctor on staff to New Jersey residents. Just call us at 908-547-0729 or visit us at strivetomove.com and click the Talk to the Doctor First button on the homepage to schedule a call with us. Thanks again for joining us and we will see you next time on the Stay Healthy New Jersey podcast.